This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for an upcoming Green Lectures on March the 6th, featuring Dr. Rob Kanoy speaking on the Book of Revelation, John's Vision of the Cross. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation with Jennifer Harvey, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and a special giveaway. For the next few episodes, you will hear interviews with Brian McLaren, Daniel Burke of CNN, as well as a teacher, author, and activist, Drew Hart. We have another book giveaway. That's right. In partnership with Abingdon Press, we'll be giving away five free copies of Jennifer Harvey's new book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. So here's how you can receive one of the five copies. Be the first of five to tweet at Abingdon Press, CBF, and me, Andy Hale. So tweet, I'm listening to the at CBF Info podcast with at Hale Andy featuring Jennifer Harvey of at Abingdon Press. Okay, it's a little wordy. You've got this. I'm listening to the at CBF Info podcast with at Hale Andy featuring Jennifer Harvey of at Abingdon Press. Good luck. Jennifer Harvey is a writer, speaker, and professor of religion at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. She received her PhD in Christian social ethics from Union Theological Seminary, where she's the author of Dear White Christians, Whiteness and Morality, and Disrupting White Supremacy. She's also written regularly for Huffington Post and for the Feminist Studies and Religion blog. Jennifer, this is an honor. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much, Andy. Now, uh, how are things in Des Moines today? Because I notice it's going to be five degrees on Saturday. Oh, I did not know that. That's not nice to start with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's sunny today. It's not warm, but it's sunny. Uh, Five does not sound pleasant to me. (laughs) There goes the weekend. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of indoor activities are taking place. Yes, Uh, well, that's right. It's Super Bowl weekend, so... Now, um, for those that aren't familiar with you, um, tell us more about you. Well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and um, especially in terms of the work and the writing that I do and the passion of my life, um, I grew up in the Denver Public Schools in a period of time where busing was the mandate um, because of needed integration. And I also grew up in a very Christian um, family, conservative Baptist deeply believing God so loved the world, 
um, as sort of my mantra and my um, the fabric of how I understood uh, the universe to be. And um, so when I was little, I was a racial minority demographically in the school system that I was in from about first till fifth or sixth grade. Um, and um, I just, most of the first friends that I had in my life were African-American, some Latino kids as well, but mostly African-American kids. And then I went on to middle high and high school. And as middle high and high school um, became where I spent my time, I noticed that even though I was in a very multiracial high school, my classroom spaces were increasingly white. And I, I noticed that. I remember noticing that. I, and I also remember not really understanding that and sort of thinking in my mind, like, well, wait a second, where's Wendy and where's Tyra and where's Mari? These folks who had been friends in my elementary school years. Um, and so I ended up, um, that was sort of in one piece of my brain. I went on into college, um, still deeply understanding God so loved the world. And in college really had a reckoning with what it meant to believe that God so loved the world and also believe that um, I was living in a society in which people went to bed hungry, um, in which racial division was the norm and not the exception. And there were a whole bunch of bunch of reasons that happened. But um, thankfully, in my life in college, a couple of amazing professors uh, handed me the work of James Cone, um, handed me God of the Oppressed, handed me Malcolm and Martin in America, and I started reading about. Um, the, you know, Cone's take on the reality of white supremacy in the United States. And I, and as he articulated um, who the black Christ was, I thought, oh my goodness, this, this um, theologian is making sense out of my entire universe. Um, and many of the things that I had noticed, but not had an understanding of prior to that point. So as um, an earnest young white girl, white woman, um, I packed up my things and I headed to Union Theological Seminary to study with James Cone, thinking, I'm going to go proclaim my love of the black Christ. And um, lo and behold, there were these amazing men and women at Union Theological Seminary, passionate, justice committed um, Christians who said to me, you know, we really honor that that's what your um, passion and your theological perspective is, but you need to notice something, and that's that you're white, and it's a little more complicated for you to um, run around proclaiming the, the black Christ, and most of these men and women were, again, African-American folks, a uh, number of Latino folks who really pushed me, challenged me, asked me hard questions, um, and I feel like the, that community at Union Seminary that group of folks um, kind of gave me my life's work by taking me seriously, but also taking me seriously enough that they um, didn't let me get away with not looking at the harder piece, which is what does it mean to be a white American and proclaim commitments to anti-racism. So I've been working on that ever since. Hmm. Now, I mean, you teach, you write on, you speak on the encounters of religion and ethics with race and gender and politics and justice and all other aspects of social life. So as, as you're going through this experience at Union, you know, why Christian social ethics? Um, why not a, another area of concentration? Well, I think, you know, when I was first at Union, I was, um, I was taking it all in. I was not so much 
narrowly looking at ethics. I was um, doing a degree in which I was thinking about the life of the church, and I was thinking about theology, and I was studying the scriptures. And um, it was really in that sort of general education um, master's work that I really um, just kept sort of honing in more and more deeply on the question of um, religion, but really specifically Christianity and issues of justice. But you know, never, never questions of justice in a disembodied way. I constantly in that space was wrestling with, as were, as was the whole community, um, the question of, the questions of embodied justice. So racial justice, gender justice, um, sexual orientation. And, and um, it, as I, as I sort of stewed in that space and experienced some invitation into activist um, work there, um, everything from talking about hiring faculty of color at Union to um, doing work against police brutality in New York City. I, I felt clear that um, for me, the problem of, my, of whiteness and white identity was particularly underexplored and there were not enough um, kind of pathways through, through um, pathways through which folks really were wrestling with that. And for me, Christian ethics, where we think about what does faith mean lived in the world, um, became the obvious pathway to um, being able to ask those questions. Um, on top of that, um, Dr. Emily Towns was coming to Union um, that same year that I was applying to programs. And so the possibility of studying with her was just, well, at the time, it just the, the possibility that such a thing could happen blew my mind. Um, and when it did happen, I really couldn't quite believe it. But um, so ethics just seemed to me the place where we wrestle with what do these claims, these belief claims we make mean when lived in the world. And so I really dwell there, even though theology sort of undergirds why I'm asking those questions in the first place. Hmm. I just I still can't get over the fact that you've had the opportunity to study under James Cohn. I'm I'm, I'm harkening <laughs> back for me for, you know, undergrad religion and philosophy studies and discovering this black theology of liberation and God of the oppressed, these amazing um, yes. of, of Christian study and ethics. Um, and that you've, yeah. you've taken that mantle uh, forward. That's such a, a, a wonderful and encouraging and awestruck thing to hear. Well, and I have to say that for me, the greatest, truly greatest blessing of my life, and I don't use those words, light, such a word lightly, is that um, not just Cohn, but Dolores Williams, um, Emily Towns, Beverly Harrison were faculty at Union who, um, you know, both taught and but also convened a community that really um, sort of rebirthed me in a in a particular kind of way. I mean, I think about my um, religious conversion as not happening when I was nine, as a good Baptist thinks it happens, but really when I was at Union because I was so fiercely loved and challenged all at the same time by this incredible community that this particular faculty just um, nurtured into being. I mean, it, 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 was, it was and remains a blessing in my life, even though those were difficult years, really difficult years for me. Well, I hope you can hear the jealousy coming through my voice. <laughs> now, you, uh, I mean, you studied and you write and you teach on um, very heavy stuff. Um, so, you know, what's the motivation behind your work? Oh, you know, I, I am, I am asked that question often. And sometimes the question comes, especially since I, I, I mean, I'm, my most regular address is to 
white folks with whom I'm seeking to journey into deeper anti-racist work. And so the question is often phrased like what's in it for white folks? Like why would white people do that? But it's as, just as good of a question to ask me. And I, I mean, in one sense, yes, I write about and I think about and I feel passionate about things that one might call heavy because, and they're heavy because the legacies of violence and harm done and, um, I mean, you know, enslavement and genocide are, are there's not words to sort of, um, in cap, you know, capture um, the devastation. But I, and so I'm not, I don't, I, w- I don't want to downplay that by saying to me, they don't feel heavy, but I do want to say that it doesn't feel heavy to me because um, what I've discovered and what I discovered through some difficult heavy lifting, um, but never by myself in my twenties was that all of us, even whether if we if we're a white U.S. American caught in this white supremacist system, all of us can experience and in some ways I think our souls are created for liberation. <laughs> and so I feel a kind of liberation and freedom in my sense of self in the world and my um, my relationship with the divine and and certainly in terms of the kinds of um, human to human relationships I have in my life because of taking this journey. And so it doesn't feel heavy to me in that sense. It feels like a life-giving gift. I always, I like to think about um, uh, how Zacchaeus must've felt when he got to go home with Jesus. You know, like I I feel like the call for those of us, uh, myself included, who are, um, you know, living against these same systems that seek to privilege us and benefit us unjustly um, need to know. And I think Christians, it shouldn't be a hard sell that, you know, Zacchaeus ended up liberated when he decided to repent and repair. And that's, of course, never a one-time activity, but I think that's the journey of my life. So to me, it feels life-giving. I feel so, I just, I, I started feeling less stuck and more like I had agency in my life. And, and those ways of feeling in my body and being in the world feel to me um, the opposite of heavy. So um, so those are the reasons that I've, it, it's, you know, I keep persisting. Hmm. I mean, I hear, I mean, it's, it's such a, um, a positive and hope filled, um, perspective and, and, and view of your, of your work and, um, the, the greater extension of the, the things that are connected around your work, but, um, it's, it's difficult. So, so where do you, where do you find your creative energy, uh, for all this? You know, um, that's such a great question. And there's, there's, um, you know, the bottom line answer over and over is relationships with other people, but that looks a few different ways. And one one way it looks is, you know, when I was being um, formed around these issues and questions and pushed and grown at Union, I remember over and over those communities, those teachers in that community saying, you know, who's your who's your community of accountability? Who do you write for? Who do you write with? Who do you need to be able to look in the eye at the end of the day and say, I have remained accountable to you. And I have a deep um, and sustained network of all, you know, beloved friends, fellow activists, fellow scholars who hold me accountable and love me up and challenge me when I need to be corrected and told I'm wrong on something. And that gives me energy. And the other way I find tremendous energy, and I found myself so grateful for this, um, you know, through the devastating um, change in the political climate starting in November of 2016. I have every day felt grateful that I already, before that happened, was engaged with 
with activists here in Des Moines in the city I live, um, working on local issues of justice, um, especially racial justice, because as difficult as the last year and a half have, um, has been, I, I, I feel like I'm part of a movement. I feel connected and I don't feel isolated, which I think a lot of folks who are struggling in this political climate are experiencing kind of a despair that's, you know, that, that can be very isolating. So I find my energy then for my writing partly out of the ways I'm engaged with actual folks who are also themselves, you know, doing their own justice work and we feed each other back and forth. Um, and that's incredibly energizing to me, um, which again is not to say, I mean, these are hard days and um, I, I contend with despair as, as much as the next person, but um, I'm not, I never feel by myself and I never feel alone. And that is huge, I believe. Mm. So, I've noticed that you write on a lot of whiteness in your newest yeah. book, your newest book, <laughs> Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. When your uh, publisher gave in to my request to receive an advanced copy of this, this <laughs> I, I started reading it. I was on an airplane from San, uh, from Raleigh to San Antonio, and uh, I was mm -hmm. digging into it. And like, I was like really deep into this book. I've got my earbuds in. And I noticed uh, my my flight companion, nobody I knew, uh, but the person sharing a row with me. I looked; they were like waving their hand in my face. So I, I took oh, out my kidding. earbuds, and it was a very sarcastic, "Yes, can I help you?" And uh, so here's how the conversation went down: What are you reading? And I smugly <laughs> responded, "An advanced reader's copy of an unpublished book." To which he immediately asked, "Well, I read the title on the head of your page." Um, can I have it? And I was thinking like, who, what? who, yeah, who a complete stranger who asked, can I have it? And so I was like, uh, I was like a toddler hoarding blocks. I looked at him and I said, no, but you can buy it when it comes out this February. And then I put my earbuds back in and I, I kept on reading. Um, so you, okay, you that's need, a great story, Andy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you, well, you don't need me to, to tell you this, but this book is brilliantly composed for for just the right time and it's mm. so practically and profoundly deeply theologically written and as I finished each chapter uh, I took away so much practical knowledge as a parent of, of two children and and then I was challenged to think uh, think differently um, mm. I, I think for me um, we'll get into the core of the book here in just a few moments but but first, tell me about Mickey Mouse Greatest Hits CD, track number mm. 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Mickey Mouse, um, you know, Rockathon CD or Greatest Hits or whatever it's called, song number 19 is the one little, two little, three little song that many of us grew up hearing. And... Um, we, when my, when my daughter, my oldest was very young, my kids are seven and nine now, um, you know, they got the CD and, and we would just quickly hit skip every time song number 19 would come on. Um, and, um, if I, if I, rem if I remember my own, uh, history with my daughter correctly, um, even though we had this awareness about the need to, or our desire to skip over that song, I, um, one day was home and I overheard her singing it and, I was really troubled by that, and I shouldn't have been surprised because, you know, anti-Native, disparaging imagery of Native peoples, 
language is everywhere in our culture. Um, we know this, and so I should not have been surprised, but of course, so often I still am. And so I, I just, you know, kind of quickly found myself in this moment where I just wanted to sort of shut it down. And, um, but I also have been trying really hard to practice over the last many years of wrestling with these issues with my kids to take a deep breath and try and, um, I want my kids to know certain behaviors are, are wrong, but I also want to make sure that um, I, they know that we can have conversations about why, because we know from lots of studies that kids hide their, their assumptions about race because they know that it's a hot button thing for adults and they know this much younger than we think they do. So if I recall correctly, I, I, I told her, um, I waited, I didn't say anything in the moment because I wanted to catch my breath because I was like, Ugh. and later in the day, I sort of gently brought it up and I just said to her, Hey H, you know, I, um, I, I remember that song. I heard you singing it earlier. And I repeated the words of the song and she said, yeah. And I said, and I just said, you know, I don't, I don't want you to, I don't want you to sing that song anymore. That's not a song we sing. And she said, well, why not? And, um, and I, you know, went flipped through my Rolodex of like, okay, what's the age appropriate explanation for why not? Um, in that moment, I decided that, um, you know, the, the history of genocide was not the response Though we've started to talk about that certainly at this point, but that simply telling her that it was mean, um, was the starting point. But I also, and this feels really important, I didn't just say it's mean, and so we don't sing the song. I said the folks who that song is supposedly about have said that the song is mean. And when someone tells us that something is hurtful to them, we, we need to listen to that. And what blew my mind about her response, especially because adults can be so challenging to, you know, we get in these conversations about, well, is that racist or not? And is it, I mean, you know, should you say this or not? She didn't follow with any of that. She just looked at me and said, um, you know, why would someone write a song that is mean? Or why would they keep, you know, putting this song out that Native Americans have said is mean? And I thought, man, that is just a great question. And, um, and I loved that that was her response, because it reminded me again, that really just being clear and direct and calling things what they are, even with our really young kids, is just critically important. So that, you know, was an early conversation that has then enabled lots of more developmentally um, complicated conversations about what Native Americans contend with um, in the current U.S. climate, as well as, um, you know, throughout emerging U.S. American history. So mm. Disney, <laughs> my daughter's like, why would Disney do that? <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't know. Why does Disney do that? Well, you know, since uh, there's a ton of Disney's execs that are probably listening to this podcast, hopefully neither one of us gets banned, you know, from them, but at least maybe <laughs> they'll take it off. Mickey Mouse is great. Hits. Yeah. They, well, yeah. They can follow Cleveland's um, steps in that direction, which were announced yesterday. So that would be a good move. Yeah. It's, uh, it's important to note uh, for those listening that uh, we recorded this interview uh, the day after the Cleveland Indians finally agreed to remove their iconic uh, yes. logo um, in a year. Um, and they're not even going to consider right now changing their name. But, you know, from, from the church's level, there was something fascinating that happened for me as I was watching the Alabama Senate race. And <laughs> I know that's kind of like a mm. A loaded statement because you're like, what particular thing about the Alabama Senate race uh, are you going to bring up? But you know, of all of all the things we could talk about, one particular thing was so curious for me, and that was uh, the media slamming Roy Moore for um, 
Jesus loves the little children. And I remember listening to people's response to this, that they just couldn't believe that they were slamming Roy Moore over this. And it's like some people were awakened for the first time to see the songs embedded racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, Andy, I, I watched so much, you know, sort of followed that race, of course, as many of us did. And I didn't even see that particular media story. So yeah, there's so much embedded racism in the things that we do and say in church, right? So much. Well, I, I think, you know, the thing about your book and uh, we can dive, dive into it. Yeah. You write that there's a couple of quotes that I, I want to pull out, but uh, the first one is, um, you wrote, all children are better off when they experience and perceive diversity as a normative state of reality. This is especially important for white children, however. Kids of color in the United States are already more likely to live lives in which they learn to relate to and engage and work with white people. White kids, on the other hand, are being raised by white adults whose social networks are 91% white. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Well, that, you know, that, um, that social networks, um, that, that data came out of the, uh, you know, Robert Jones work. And they were, I believe some of that um, sort of research was done specifically, I, I believe, in response to Ferguson and Michael Brown's killing there and the attempt to understand why white Americans and um, African-Americans in particular were so far apart in our interpretations of how much racial injustice is pandemic in US life. And that startling statistic that an over, I mean, not just like more than half, like almost all white US Americans have no, have few to no significant relationships with people of color in their lives. And I'm not talking about, oh, I used to have a friend of a friend, but like meaningful in-depth relationships is so significant because, I mean, we know, and I see this in my students in college all the time, students of color who come to Drake University, they have been navigating white people their entire life and learning how to engage across racial lines and developing a skill set to do that. And um, whether they want to or not, you know, whether they think, whether their um, parents think it's important or not, that's just the reality because of the way our society is structured. When white children don't um, experience uh, meaningful interracial relationships, having teachers in their classrooms, having pastors at church, um, coaches on their soccer teams, they, their, their ability to, um, to A, think about the world as really a genuinely diverse place where they are not the center of the universe, is completely um, uh, impacted. It's you know they start they assume that white is the norm, which globally it's not. It's it's increasingly not in many places uh, in our, our urban centers in the United States, and eventually it's not going to be in the United States as a whole. They also don't have a um, by not being having the incredible experience of learning how um, African Americans and Latino people and Asian American folks. Um, maybe show up culturally and in diverse ways, um, how those communities navigate um, US society um, by not learning to um, 
see themselves as sort of just one among many, just all of these negative consequences come because race, race is not just a set of ideas and beliefs about people, it's this deep socialization we go through. And so white kids mostly are getting socialized into kind of white culture, which I don't exactly know how to think about what white culture even is, but um, in ways that really harm their ability then as they grow up to be good allies, to believe people of color when they talk about injustice, to um, even see themselves as not the center of the universe and behave in ways that act as if they are the center of the universe. We need to pause and tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Are you struggling with the call of God in your life? Do you feel like you've been called to ministry? Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other, both in and out of the classroom. We invite you to visit us to learn more about who we are. A master-level visitation day will be held on Tuesday, March the 27th. Individual visits are also welcome. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. You've made it clear that this is a challenge for parents. And in fact, you wrote, there's so much more uncharted territory in parenting. This is true when raising kids in a nation experiencing the best times in regards to any number of issues, but there's nothing easy about these times and race is unequally difficult. Raising white kids differently than most of us were raised with few roadmaps at a time when failure of decade of colorblind parenting and tepid attempts to celebrate differences have been exposed and is difficult enough. Um, What has been the most challenging aspect of this uncharted territory for you? I, I think for me personally, as a parent, the most challenging part, the most challenging part is very specific. Um, I am most challenged by wanting my kids and teaching them explicitly that their work, part of their work in the world is to learn and manifest anti-racist behaviors. Um, And the challenge for me is doing that while also not um, allowing them to also only see people of color as somehow um, victims are only defined by racism. (laughs) I don't want my kids to think that is the entire story um, relative to communities of color. And so that specific challenge is very real for me and probably the most difficult um, balance to find. And it's not even a balance. It's about sort of making sure there's a whole bunch of kinds of resources and stories and relationships and experiences they're having. But how do we elevate the anti-racist um, agency of white kids while also making clear that, you know, people of color and communities of color are about 
so many more things than simply white supremacy and racism. That's hard. Hmm. All right. My favorite question to ask people who I think write brilliant work. Um, and I'm going to say this, this is with a lot of snark. Um, <laughs> what's the most incompetent response you've received from um, not just this book, but from all of your other books? <laughs> the most incompetent response? Yeah. I feel like that's a gracious way of asking, yeah. uh, you know, what's the dumbest thing somebody said back to you? <laughs> oh, well, I guess it depends on which kind of, which kind of incompetent. <laughs> One, it, the most incompetent is the completely false notion that, you know, we don't have a problem in the United States when it comes to race. So when I get asked by um, media or, um, you know, folks who want to say, well, what do you say to folks? What do you want to say to people that don't think we have a problem? I can't, it's so difficult for me to answer that question authentically because, what all I want to say is, well, I don't even see how we have a conversation then because not because I'm a jerk who can't talk to almost anybody, but because, you know, where are you living? What are you reading and who are you talking to to conclude that we don't have a problem? I mean, that that to me is just sort of I, I can't I feel committed to talking to folks who might have that perception, but I can't I can't always find a way to start on the ground floor and say, let me prove to you racism as a thing that just I can't even. I'm not even sure what universe folks are dwelling in when they can conclude that. So that's, that's hard. That's probably the most incompetent. But the, the other thing I think is really um, that I do encounter and that I think is difficult um, is I do get questioned a lot and maybe it's not incompetent because it's an appropriate question, but there is a prevailing um, sense, I think that because racism appropriately is, talked about and worried about because of the impact on communities of color, that's the appropriate moral and spiritual starting point. That because of that, to talk about the role of white people in anti-racism work or, or, or um, skill building is somehow diverts from that commitment and that white folks don't have some unique challenges that actually we need to figure out. Um, when, when sometimes my work is perceived in that way, usually before folks have actually read it, I find that challenging too and frustrating because I think, you know, if, if you know, back to Du Bois, if, if white folks are the problem and the cause here, then there really needs to be some scrutiny on us. And um, why would we expect white folks to do anything different than our parents did or our grandparents before them if we don't do some intervening and interrupting and look at look at the whiteness piece. So a response that sees my work as somehow not, as so sort of somehow pulling away from attention to the harm of racism in terms of the experience of people of color, that I find sort of a, at least interesting to be gracious about it as a, as a knee-jerk reaction to, to my work sometimes. Hmm. You know, as, as followers of, of Jesus, so where do we begin with someone who has a, a different worldview, um, someone who doesn't see a systematic issue of racism in the United States? You know, I think the answer depends on who that person is in your life. Um, so if it's a family member, let's say it's my family member, <laughs> where I start with is a, a, telling, a telling the truth, a sharing of my experience, a 
um, exchange about, you know, a gentle exchange, depending on the nature of the relationship, um, a gentle exchange about data and theologies and experiences. And I know that then that's work that I'm going to be involved in with that person for a very, very long time. My conversations with some of my family members today are not the same as they were 20 years ago, but it's taken us 20 years to get to that point. Um, I don't always, um, with some other person in the world, um, that that's their starting point. I maybe don't always have the time and the, the bandwidth to invest 20 years in that individual person. And um, what I'm more concerned about if I'm in a community is um, getting the folks who are more, more aware or more open to being authentically convinced, getting those folks mobilized to create a culture and a climate together that is um, that is warm and inviting of justice. And so sometimes, um, you know, in some community spaces, say in Des Moines, I'm more worried about really speaking to and with the folks who are open hearted and want to look at how things are and want to do some work. Like, and that's where I'll spend my time and my energy. But, you know, I try, then if I'm in a classroom and I have students who have a perspective that is so, um, so, so far from where, what I assume the way things are to be, I, I do feel a moral and a teaching obligation to understand that they have been handed and given a, a bunch of untruths and that my job as a teacher is to meet them where they are at, not to withhold the truth, not to soften the truth, but to compassionately recognize I was there too at some point and tell them the truth with clarity while also appreciating and saying to them over and over, you didn't, you know, this was, this was done to you. You were lied to. And it's painful to learn that you were lied to, but I'm here with you on this journey if you're willing to go on this journey. Um, and I was lied to too at one point in my life. <laughs> so, um, so it depends, it depends on the person and who they are in, in, in the particular context I'm in. But I mean, I do think white person to white person, compassion and empathy is important but it cannot be a, a silent or um, truth uh, compromising empathy and compassion. Hmm. You know, if this was the wizarding world, I would say a, a pensive would be uh, perfect for people to be able to download the experiences of others. You know, maybe if we can hook some sort of zip drive to our brains, but I, I you know, I think <laughs> there's something to be said about sitting down and listening to the experiences of others and stepping outside of our own yeah. to understand others. And I think, I think one of the things I appreciate most about your writing is that you're hitting on very difficult topics. You're hitting on things that uh, it, it is easy for someone who, who lives in a white worldview um, doesn't want to hear it, but you do it in such a gracious way. I mean, even as I ask you the question, what's the most incompetent thing you've heard? You answered it so graciously. I mean, you're so nice. Um, all right. So in, including. Well, wait, can I just say that's probably because the most incompetent thing I've heard is probably something I've said. So I try not to forget that. Right. I mean, that's, this was me and the number of folks that in my life that today I look back and I think, Oh my gosh, I said this to that person about race. And they showed up and stayed in community with me anyway, even though they were mad about it and spoke truth about it. Like, so that may be why is that I see myself there. That, I mean, that's just true. I, I've said the most incompetent things. <laughs> so <laughs> even, even that response is so gracious. Good gracious. This is just... <laughs> uh, okay. So you issue a challenge. Uh, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but you issue a challenge where you're right. 
And so our goal as parents is not, and we must not simply be, to teach our children to be more inclusive, embracing, and curious humans. These dispositions are important, yes, but our goal must be to bring them along with us and just as likely let them bring us along also as we work to change this world. What's been the most life-giving thing about writing on, on such a topic? Uh, the most life-giving thing has been talking to other adults, sharing parts of the work with them, telling some of the stories and my own experiences that are shared in the book um, to other adults, and having them say thank you, and having them say, this helps me think in a different way about what I am and am not saying to my kids, what I am and am not modeling. Um, and the reason that's life-giving is because I feel like this is a resource that we need desperately um, because so much of what we have tried, even the justice committed among us, has not worked yet and we need a massive cultural shift with this next generation. So that's been incredibly life-giving to hear that it resonates for folks. And the other life-giving part is that for me, I wrote this book because I'm a mom and I am trying to figure this out as I go to take all of this theory and these commitments and this theology that I have long dwelled in and sort of translate it to what it means when I'm talking to my five-year-old. And I need other adults in my life who are similarly trying to do that with young kids. And so when folks resonate, then I find, oh, I have another, another conversation partner myself um, for this for this parenting that I'm doing because I have a long ways to go. My kids are so little still. And so I know the conversations are going to get more difficult in some ways. Um, and so it's been very life-giving to feel like, oh, we could create a new kind of connection and community, multiracial community, to talk about these really hard questions. That feels incredibly life-giving to me. Hmm. So besides the fact that it's going to be five degrees on Saturday in Des Moines, Speaking of which, have oh, you ever I had, had forgotten? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had somebody pronounce it Desmonets? I mean, clearly they've never been yeah. before. Uh, Andy, the most incompetent thing, I probably did that <laughs> before I ever moved here. <laughs> um, yes, I have heard that. I have yeah. heard that. <laughs> uh, so besides besides all of that, what what's next? Oh, well, what's next? Um, what's next is... Um, I hope um, and I expect lots of conversations with, with lots of different communities about the book and about my insights from the book, um, but also in a strategy building, um, like, oh my goodness, this is something we could work together on in all kinds of different spaces, church spaces, community organizing spaces, uh, PTAs. Um, and so I think really the next bit of time, I'm going to be spending a lot of um, my energy being in conversations with folks. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know. Um, I'm starting a little bit of thinking about a project um, having to do with reparations and um, the interstate system in Des Moines, in Des Moines. Um, but that's sort of um, my first priority is to sort of support some of the work of this book, really um, getting in, into people's um, conversations and ways of thinking about race and um, skill building toolkit. So that's what I'm doing right now. Well, I'll be sure to uh, nag your publisher to see if I can get an advanced copy of that as well. <laughs> Next time, give the guy on the plane your copy and I'll have my publisher send you another one. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it said, it said, do not duplicate or sell. So I was afraid. Well, I, I, fair enough. 
Yeah, you don't know. You never know if the publisher police are going to be at all terminals, especially San Antonio. So. You never know. Yeah. Well, if you want to stay connected with Jennifer, you can visit jenniferharvey.com. Of course, you can go and buy Raising White Kids wherever books are sold. Jennifer, thank you for writing on whiteness and challenging everyone to see that we can change this world by changing the way that we see and work with others. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been great talking with you. I appreciate it. All right. Don't forget, you want a copy of one of her books. So tweet at, I'm listening to the at CBF info podcast with at Hale Andy featuring Jennifer Harvey of at Abingdon Press. Good luck. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 